Do clouds ever say that idiot looks like a cloud? Humans have canine teeth, but dogs don't have man teeth. The stink of decomposition is nature too. Endangered species should wear helmets. I will never worship the sun. Don't you hate it when a bird knows it's beautiful? Sweet corn should be called sweet for corn. Nature despises the human shin. Never attempt to contact Squall directly. So many stars. Welcome now to Out of All Doors. Hello, and welcome to the 22nd episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent, and Out of All Doors is a podcast about the outdoors. It is. I swear. I swear! A few months ago, I strongly encouraged all of you to write in questions for the show in general or for one of the individual contributors. Well, we were overwhelmed by the response. Two people sent questions in. But we aren't the kind to shy away from a challenge. We boldly set out to give thorough answers to all two of them. And at the time, I thought we'd achieved our goal. But in retrospect, I now realize that we certainly answered Andrew's question very thoroughly, but Natalie's question kind of got the short end of the stick, mostly because she'd written her question specifically for Squall, and he was totally incommunicado at the time for mysterious reasons, so I was forced to just guess at his answer and then move on. But today we rectify this. Today, Natalie gets her answer from the man himself, Squall. So before I play you the audio of Squall answering the question, I must emphasize how important it is that you never attempt to contact Squall on your own. If you have a question or comment for him, please send it to me first and I'll make sure he gets it. And if his reply isn't horribly objectionable, I will share it with you. But again, do not contact Squall directly. It's so important. Anyway, here's Squall. Oh, also, the bad audio is all his fault and, um, and don't contact him. Here's Squall. Okay. Now what's this question? It doesn't regard fishing at all? No, it has nothing to do with fishing. In fact, it has specifically to do with your YouTube product reviews, so the fact that you're recording this for use on your channel is appropriate. Are you ready for the question? Why did, why did she just leave a question on our product reviews herself that she wanted to ask me herself? Does she not have a YouTube account? I don't know. I don't know why she asked me. I don't know why. I mean... As always, and I, you know, this was our policy back in the day, but I think it's still our policy that I never advise contacting you directly. I always suggest that listeners, if they want to interact with Squall, they come through me as an intermediary so I can filter, edit, and censor his response if I consider it inappropriate or insulting or offensive or otherwise dangerous in some way. And to my listeners, I don't advise this at all. I believe you can contact me, and I will not give you an inappropriate answer because of the fact that I've been developing social skills for the past few years. Well, be that as it may, we're not talking to your listeners. We're talking to my listeners. My listeners receive top priority, and I have to keep their safety and their sensibilities in mind. That has to be my top priority. And obviously your listeners are subpar listeners. <laughs> if you, well, if you I think your listeners are subpar listeners. Uh, anyway, all right, let's go ahead and go with the question. All right, the so question. the question says, Dear Squall, I once watched a product review of yours. The review included you introducing us to Sprite Cranberry, or Crapberry as you called it. 
I was glad to be informed about this product, but at the same time I was terribly distracted. Did you give any thought as to where you were going as to where you were going to review this product? The countless air fresheners on the shelf really threw me for a loop. I hope you don't take this question the wrong way. I miss your presence on Out of All Doors, and I sincerely think you have a lot to contribute to a variety of audiences. Thanks, Natalie. So do you do you understand the question? I think she's wondering why specifically you chose the location that you did to review the Sprite Crapberry. And I think that the subtext is why were there so many air fresheners? And I have to say, Squall, that for me personally... The presence of all those air fresheners in the background makes me worried that a certain ottoman has come back into your life that you insisted you disposed of years ago. No, the uh, air fresheners are of my product review series. So those air fresheners that were in the background were products that you had previously reviewed, and so they were then on display in the background as sort of a, a wink to loyal viewers. Yeah, just as uh, sort of a, a a playful nod. Yeah, like yeah. Our plus they were uh, uh, also there for because uh, I haven't actually reviewed any of them yet, so they're they're meant for future me. Oh, that's a, a preview of things to come. So can yes. we? So is that something that you do a lot? Where you the things that you're going to review eventually will show up like kind of placed coyly in the background to entice viewers to come back for more, hoping that some of those things in the background will be reviewed? Yes. Also, if they if, if they do recognize them, and if they do post on the future video of the specific product or uh, subject in question, then they get small points. Well, Squall, I'm, I'm afraid this is supposed to be for Out of All Doors, so I'm afraid I'm going to have to squash this advertising for quote-unquote Squall points and this this shameless plea for comments on your page. The viewers choose to do what they do. Well, in this case, these listeners are my listeners, and I'm not going to devote this time with you to getting them to go over to your YouTube pages and give you the precious commodity of their attention. Uh, YouTube.com backslash squalshame. Well, now I'm going to have to edit that out. <laughs> oh, anyway. So is this all pretty much regarding out of doors? Out of all doors? Are out of all doors, whatever. You are on the show, out of all doors. You were one of the inaugural guests on that, and you don't even know the name of it. But no, the the I don't I don't know that we fully answered the question though. Putting the air fresheners aside, what specifically is your rationale for the locations that you choose to review products in? Mm, not really any specific. See, this is I guess. See. When this question was first on and we couldn't get a hold of you and I was forced to guess if you'd given any thought as to where you were going to review the product, I guessed that the answer was no. That it just happened to be oh. wherever the computer was pointing. No, no. I have it set up now to where it's an actual enclosed space and I have I have like a, above my above my computer I've got a light that I can shine on and highlight products and I 
got a table behind me that I can use, and I've got a whiteboard that I write on also. And then to the left of me, I have my bookcase that I can put some of the products I have for future reviews on. All right. Well, uh, uh, I think that that basically answers the question then. Do you have any future reviews coming up that you could tease? Yes, a lot of future reviews. Such as? I, I, uh, I, well, let me show you this little thing over here. This is Pathfinder. Uh, if they, yeah, it's Pathfinder. All right, well, for my <laughs> listeners who aren't seeing the video, Squall is yeah. holding a board game up to the camera that it's says a, Pathfinder Adventure Card Game on it. Uh, this Pathfinder, it's an adventure card game. It's a campaign setting, somewhat like D&D, and you go on adventures. And so in the future... I plan on having the adventures of Squall the Assassin. Squall the Assassin. Now, who could that possibly be? Uh, who wouldn't it be? Who wouldn't it be? Anyway, but... Um, For my listeners, Squall is just made an exasperated facial expression as if he could not believe the idiocy of my question. That's that's right. That That proves that you're not a gamer. Because you don't even understand what I'm talking about. How dare you? And what does your shirt say? I'm not arguing. I'm just e- explaining why I'm right. Hey, listeners, it's me, Adam, again. I'm just jumping in to tell you a couple of things. The first being that, again, you should never attempt to contact Squall directly. And the second, to warn you that the next few minutes are just me plumbing the depths of Squall's opinions about punctuation on T-shirts. So if that doesn't sound like the kind of thing you'd be interested in, I suggest skipping ahead to about a little more than six minutes from now or so. That's right. I'm giving you sass. And in that sentence, the words arguing and right are both highlighted for some reason. They're given special yep. emphasis. And it's also got an exclamation point, which I disagree with exclamation point. I think it should just be a period. I think it should be a declarative sentence. Kind of hypocritical for you to wear the shirt then. Why is that? Because I'm right? Because by wearing it, it's implicit endorsement. You're extremely pleased with yourself, but by wearing that shirt, it's implicit endorsement of the use of the exclamation point on that T-shirt. I think uh, if you're wearing a t-shirt, you're telling the world, I agree with wholeheartedly everything on this t-shirt. Oh, okay. Well, I, I guess, yeah, I guess. I also have another t-shirt that some uh, on some of my YouTube videos that uh, it says always in control and it has a PlayStation controller on it. Which I like. And I also have a Bruce Lee shirt that says Fears for Others. It has a picture of him on it, which I like. Has a picture of what? It has a picture of who? Of Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee. Does that one have an exclamation point on it? No, no, it does not. Because that one one seems like it definitely should have an exclamation point. No, it has no punctuation whatsoever. So it's up to the Surely user. you don't agree with right. that decision. But uh, you yes, must. You own the shirt. Yep. I, because I think it's an implied period, an implied declarative sentence. 
So the always in control shirt, what kind of punctuation are we dealing with there? Question mark at the end? None. Nope, none. There is no punctuation, which again, I think it's it's a implied period, which makes it an implied declarative sentence. Do you have any other do you have any uh, other t shirts with non traditional punctuation choices? I don't believe so. Is that something you look for in a t shirt? When you're shopping no. for a t shirt, uh, do you do you examine the punctuation and make your decision yes. based on that? Yes, I do. What kind of punctuation would be a deal breaker for you on a shirt? Like take the shirt you're wearing now. Well, I'm not arguing I'm Yeah. I'm just explaining why I'm right. One exclamation point. That was not a deal breaker for you. What kind of punctuation choices would make it a deal breaker for you? Well, the reason I, I got this because it was free. I didn't actually pay for this. But if I would have had to pay for it, I would not have gotten it. Because of the exclamation point. Because of the exclamation point. But what kind of punctuation could there have been on the shirt that would have made you not even accept it, even with it being free? Well, if it was a question mark, like uh, some of the shirts that say, why so serious? With the question mark at the end, that I would not get that shirt at all. What if it said, why so serious, but there was no question mark? You, you've shown in the past, implied. you've proven that you're a fan of the unpunctuated t-shirt. Yeah, but that would be an implied question because of the word why. Because why is a question word. So it's not just the question mark in that case. It, it, it's also the, the context of the words. Well, what about this? What if it was why so serious, but... It had like a Spanish language upside down question mark in front of it and then a regular question mark at the end. Well, then it'd be a totally different context, which would not apply to American sensibility, but I probably would not be interested. What if it said why what if it said what if it said why so seriously as a sort of a nod to your own your former bookstore, seriously books? Nope, not even then. You've taken a hard because line still, stance against this shirt. Yep, it's it's still it still has the, the the Joker context associated with it, and I'm just not a fan of that saying. So there, you're telling it, me that there are there's no your, way what, there's no possible way to punctuate the sentence "Why so serious?" that it would entice you to buy a shirt with that on it. Correct. What if it was like? What if it was like in quotation marks? I don't even care. What there was. A, what if there was a, an apostrophe let's, let's between the U and the S? In I don't even, nope, nope, nope. Cut, uh, cut you off right there. What shirt are you wearing? Let's see what shirt you're wearing. It looks like an old grandpa T-shirt, old grandpa sweatshirt. Squall, we're not talking. You're, you're in the middle of the. You're in the middle of the plains there, so you're probably wearing a t-shirt. All right, well, we're going to have to cut this question off now. This is starting to hit a little too close to home, so I'll probably have to edit that stuff out there in the end. I really don't appreciate, on my show, you turning the, the training your sights on me and embarrassing me for my listeners. So this is the end. Thank you for answering your question, Squall. Natalie, I hope you feel that the, answer, the question was answered sufficiently. 
And thank you to Squall for, for coming on here and answering the question. If anyone else has any questions for Squall, again, I must reiterate how important it is that you contact me, and then I will contact Squall. Do not attempt to contact Squall directly. Squall, do you want to say goodbye? YouTube.com backslash Squallshade if you're interested. I post on there frequently, well, semi-frequently right now. But I hope to be on future episodes of Out of All Doors. We'll see how that goes. All right. Thank you, Squall. Have a good night. Yep. Well, that was Squall answering the questions, sort of, bragging about his newly developed social skills and starting out with a hardline stance on t-shirt punctuation before eventually revealing that he doesn't actually have any sincere t-shirt punctuation standards at all. And again, please never attempt to contact him directly. I would hate to be responsible for that happening. And now, on with the rest of the show. Let's begin, shall we? And now, be welcomed to the Campfire of Chills. Tonight's selection comes from Listener Andrew. Yes, that Listener Andrew. And it's called Special Ghost. Special Ghost didn't feel particularly special. He didn't send shivers down the spines of the people he haunted the way Icy Chill Ghost did. Nor did he spook people the way Spooky Ghost did. He did not startle people the way Slightly Displaced Object Ghost did, nor did he show up on film years after a photo was taken like Orb Ghost. He didn't even leave octopuses in delightful locations such as behind the refrigerator or under the lid of the samovar the way that Octopus Ghost did. Special Ghost got so upset he slumped down on his ghost couch, which used to be a living couch, but died feeling unfulfilled, so now it is a ghost couch. He tried to think of what he could do to live up to his name. He thought he might shuffle boxes of Special K so that people would be haunted by the rattling of the cereal inside, but decided that it would probably just make people hungry. He thought about haunting craftsmen who specialized in specific skills, but decided he didn't want to narrow the number of people he spooked, since there wasn't a lot of people who were scared of him anyway. Special Ghost thought and thought about what made him special and came up with nothing. He tried haunting castles. He tried haunting hotels. He even tried grocery stores, spooking people from behind the produce. But nothing made him feel fulfilled or special. But one day, when Special Ghost felt like giving up, he tried haunting a podcast. He interrupted stories. He moaned over contributors. He even created his own episode, but nothing made him feel special until he heard a story called Special Ghost. Special Ghost realized that he was special because every ghost is different. The simple fact that he wasn't like all the other ghosts made him special. Then he crossed over to the other side and died peacefully ever after. The end. It's working. The story has opened my eyes. I'm crossing over to other side. Goodbye. Goodbye. Just kidding. I'm going to kill you, Andrew.
And a, a special thank you to Andrew for sending that in. As usual, we really don't know how the ghost is going to react to things until we post the episode because we don't hear him while we're recording. It isn't until the episode is posted because he's haunting the podcast itself. But, I mean, I figured I'd include it because it was worth a try, you know? It was a good idea, and I figured, you know, what could it hurt? We take a wrong turn and walk into the laboratory of a scientist who, while not mad, is nonetheless carelessly pointing his new shrink ray right at the door. And when we walk through the door, it startles him into triggering the shrink ray. We all receive a direct hit from the shrink ray. The shrink ray works perfectly, which is further proof that the scientist isn't actually mad. In reality, mad scientists rarely make functional rays of any kind. Most mad scientists die in the very early stages of ray testing, usually as a direct result of their madness, combined with proximity to many life-threatening and hazardous materials. Once shrunken, we scramble as a group toward the nearest potted plant for cover. We estimate that we're about one inch tall, although one of us is twice as tall as the rest of us, which further calls into question the validity of science. But while we're behind the plant, we notice that someone broke a chunk of plastic out of the pot near the floor, and then dug a cave into the dirt. Shrugging as one, we go into the cave, and immediately we sense them. They're tiny presences, although they feel regular size to us, because we, our very selves, are tiny. We got shrunk, if you'll recall. We have entered the battery. In the early 90s, there was a band called Thief and the Thieves. They were famous for having four members at the same time. One of them was named Jeff, one of them was named Kathik, with a K at the end, one of them was named Drummer, he played bass, and the other one was named Orville, and he was the one who usually tried to talk the rest of the band into adding a fifth member, so that the number of people in the band would stop overshadowing their music. Well, in 1993, they released a five-song EP called We Have Four Members, which was a deceptive title because the EP was actually a concept record all about bats. Track one is called Bat Fueler, and it rocks. It's about a man who pumps gas for bats. They pull up in their giant immaculate old cars and he hands them a long pointer stick. And then they use that pointer stick to point either to a sign that says fill her up or a sign that says if the bat is pointing at this sign, he or she may be illiterate, in which case you should just fill up their vehicle with gasoline anyway. But in all his years as a bat fueler, the bat fueler has never seen any bats actually pay for the gas once he's pumped it into their cars. So who's footing the bill? Thief and the Thieves leave that question unanswered in favor of howling that question over and over as the song fades out. Track two is called Bat Out of... Many people who looked at the track listing of the album assumed that the band was being coy about using the word hell, but it turned out that the full title of the song was actually Bat Out of Schadenfreude, and the band, unsure of how to spell Schadenfreude, had intended to look it up later before submitting the official track list, but then they forgot because they were all forgetful, all four of them. Anyway, Bat Out of... dot dot dot... also rocks! It's about a bat who can no longer derive pleasure from the misfortune of others because he overdosed on schadenfreude and blew out the schadenfreude receptors in his brain when an anti-bat activist got bitten by another anti-bat activist who happened to be rabid. Track 3 is called Bats Last. 
Now, while this song does rock, you could be forgiven for being a little tentative about admitting that it rocks based on that title. But don't worry, it's not saying that bats should be the last to receive spots on lifeboats if the ships on which their passengers happen to be sinking. It's saying that bats last, like last for a long time. Bats endure would have been a clearer name, but if Thief and the Thieves were about one thing, it was courting controversy. Well, no, if they were about one thing, it was about having four members at the same time, but if one were to add a second thing to the list of things they were about, that second thing would probably be courting controversy. Anyway, this song does make the dubious claim that the reason that bats last so long is that they have over 8,000 layers of skin, a claim that I've never seen verified by anyone, including every idiot I know. Track 4 is called Fangs for My Heart, and it starts off like a soothing ballad, but before you know it, it's rocking. This song is about how there's no such thing as a Cupid who shoots you in the heart with arrows to make you fall in love. What this song counters with is that there is a Cupid who sends a special red bat to bite you in the heart with its fangs to make you fall in love. The song has an instrumental bridge with a huge guitar solo, and if you listen carefully during it, you can hear Kathik in the background asking if anyone else hears a guitar, a question which sounds disconcertingly sincere since she's almost certainly in the same room as the guitar while the solo is being played thereupon. Track 5 is called Batty Bout You, and the U is spelled just like it sounds. You. Just you. Wow, this is not easy to explain in a strictly auditory medium. Alright, imagine the word you. Now, just imagine it being spelled as you. I feel like I'm not explaining this well. You know how the word you is usually spelled like in a formal document or a novel or a wedding invitation or what have you? Okay, this is not spelled exactly like that. It's just spelled partially like that. Urgh, I just wish there was a way... Oh, I know. I'll tweet the spelling right now. Then, when you hear this, you can go to my Twitter account, which is at HugePop, and you can look at the tweet from 2.34 a.m. Central Time on June 29th. Are you looking at it? That's how Thief and the Thieves spells the word you in the title of the song, Batty Bout You. We love the tiny bats in the tiny cave in the back of the potted plant, but we can't stay tiny forever. We need to get unshrunken before the sane but amoral scientist moves on from his shrink ray experiments and forgets how to reverse the process. We don't want to spend the rest of our lives as shrunken versions of ourselves, but it is nice to know that wherever we are, no matter the environment, no matter the setting, there's always a chance that just behind that dresser, just behind that curtain, just behind that pile of rags, there might be a tiny cave full of tiny bats. We don't know about you, but we find that comforting. Now let's go find a way to get ourselves back to normal size. Oh, we know! Let's try stacking on each other's shoulders and then shooting the shrink ray into a mirror! We leave the battery. Golly, Jason, you think we'll ever find the Earth this cursed diary originated from so we can return it and be done with this mission? 
Oh, yeah, this is it. We're on it. This is the earth the diary belongs to. For real? Did I forget to tell you that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we were on spring break, I talked to this guy, and he was like, here's the coordinates, and I did the calculations, and it checks out. This is definitely it. Wow. After all this time, it was that easy. Oh, yeah, for sure. So I'll just set this diary here, and kablamo, mission accomplished. So, so I guess this is it. Yep. I mean... You and I, we should we should probably get back to our respective corners of the multiverse. It's true, old friend. Our adventures come to an end. There will be no more Jason and Casey traversing the multiverse, but cheer up, pal. How about, before we end things, one last song, you and me, for old time's sake. I'd like that, Jason. I'd like that a lot. Okay, cool. Let me just grab my percussion kit, and uh, one, two, three, four... extraordinary person You write the most peculiar kind of tunes I met you floating as I was boating One afternoon Wasn't it the most amazing meeting Surrounded by those monsters from the deep You started telling me a funny story And I fell asleep Oh, what a dream Oh, what a dream that was We went for a glide across the country I was hungry after traveling so far You offered me your one and only sandwich I said, how kind you are Wasn't it the most amazing feeling? Cause everything was really as it seemed You are the most extraordinary person I've ever dreamed Oh, what a dream Oh, what a dream that was Oh, what a dream Wasn't it the most amazing feeling? Cause everything was really as it seemed You are the most extraordinary person I've ever dreamed <laughs> hey Jason, welcome to your nightmare. <laughs> no! Don't worry, Casey. It's me, buddy. It's me, the real me. That that thing you were just singing with isn't your Jason. He's not even another Jason from the multiverse. 
He's an android, Jason. He tied me up and took my place during spring break as we vacationed on that earth with the hot dog, sushi, and beer trees. It's taken me this long to develop a second portal hopper to track you down. I just wanted to sing. And he sang so beautifully. Well, then you should have known it wasn't me, Casey. You should have known. I mean, these things aren't even that smart. They're just programmed to respond with stock phrases to certain stimuli. Like if I say, now we're cooking. Oh, if you say pajamas, and I say pajamas, I'll wear pajamas and give up pajamas. But where did he, it come from? What was its goal? I said I just wanted to... My hunch is it wanted to throw us off our trail and prevent us from finding the home planet of this diary. Well, he failed. All his efforts have only doubled my resolve to return this diary to where it belongs. Well, that's the thing, Casey. That android, Jason, had not only failed, but he failed miserably. My calculations show that this is the home planet of the diary. What? Yeah, I mean, he must have just picked a random Earth from the infinitude of the multiverse, and of all the dumb luck, it happened to be the one Earth he didn't actually want to go to. It's uncanny. Not true. I wanted to help and to sing. Anyway, it all worked out despite that stupid dead robot. You're sure? Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Well, then this is really it. Our journey's come to an end. I suppose so, compadre. So what do you say? One more song for the road? I mean, I kind of already did a goodbye song. I mean, it it doesn't feel as, I don't know, genuine. Yeah, with a robot, not with me. And then I only saved your life from said robot. So you're going to sing the song, okay? Let me steal this dead robot's percussion hit here. And a one, two, three, four... You are the most extraordinary person You write the most peculiar kind of tunes I met you floating as I was boating One afternoon Wasn't it the most amazing meeting Surrounded by those monsters from the deep You started telling me a funny story And I fell asleep Oh, what a dream Oh, what a dream that was We went for a glide across the country I was hungry after traveling so far You offered me your one and only sandwich I said how kind you are Wasn't it the most amazing feeling? Cause everything was really as it seemed You are the most extraordinary person I've ever dreamed Oh, what a dream What a dream, oh, what a dream that was. 
wasn't it the most amazing feeling? Cause everything was really as it seemed. You are the most extraordinary person I've ever dreamed. <laughs> Casey, get out of the way! What the hell? You shot me! Yeah, yeah I did, cause you're a robot too! No I'm not, I was chasing Casey through the multiverse after that android Jason kidnapped him and- Ah, Is this the Casey from Earth 3164? Nah, he's from Earth 3165. Dang it. Okay, I get what happened. What? What happened? Well, in the infinitude of the multiverse, there would be an infinity of Earths with hot dog sushi and beer trees where a version of you were kidnapped after a version of me was tied up by an android version of me. Or me. Or him. And then that Jason who was tied up would go searching for you throughout the multiverse to varying results. Like me, for example. I found you. Whereas I apparently got shot by my doppelganger. Yeah, I'm I'm really sorry about that. It's alright. I'm being a baby. You just winged me. Well, how about a little three-part harmonizing then, shall we? I'm really not in the mood. You'll get there. Oh, one, two, three, four. Extraordinary person You write the most peculiar Casey, wake up! You're dreaming and you're making the cutest noises uh, is, is spring break over? Nah, buddy, because we just hit the jackpot An earth where spring break is eternal And Jennifer Lawrence is president And she's decreed that everyone must join her For a never-ending party at the White House Where the hot dog sushi and beer trees Bear fruit each and every season of the year Well, that is something to sing about Jason, look out! This is Cayman reporting from the road. I'm probably going to have a lot of small updates that I'll send in once I have enough of them for you. So let's just call this entry number one. I've had a very enlightening and busy day today. I'm somewhere in Iowa at the moment, 
and I've spent quite a lot of time getting on and off of trains and getting to know the hobos who invite me along with them. Cyrus's opinions that the hobos are very secretive and untrusting has not been in keeping with my experience at all. They have been so trusting and open that I am quite shocked that no one has reported on them before. Other than the fact that I'm not sure anyone would care enough to try. Still, they've been so welcoming that they've already bestowed upon me a road name. They've decided I will be known as Curious Jim because of all my questions. Entry number two. It seems like all the hobos I've met so far are dressed as late 1980s or early 90s stereotypes, some much more convincingly than others. When I ask them why, they all insist that having your own personal style is important to them, and they all love the movie The Warriors, so they seem to believe that uniforms are very important. I've been easing into the hermit for this hobo question, and today was the day. I was in a train car with about six hobos, Ovarian Jim, Wally the Wiz, East Ridge Eddie, Jukebox Jim, Teddy Two Teeth, and Sonny Sal were all in attendance when I breached the question. I asked if it was true that they were mortal enemies with the hermits. They all said it was. When I asked what they had against the hermits, there was a long list of grievances. They're dumb, they're pretentious, they steal babies out of strollers and backyards, they eat illegally harvested organs, and I stopped them there and asked them why the feud had even started. What was the origin? What I got in response was a bunch of rhetorical questions. Why is the grass green? Why is the sky blue? Why is there always a wrong side of the tracks? Why does everyone have to listen to the internet make that screeching howling noise? How'd they make Windows 95 so superior to every other operating system? Who is Jim Galt? They all assured me with their rhetorical replies that it was pointless to ask such things. And it was kind of obvious to me that nobody actually knew the answer. Entry number three. I've learned that a huge point of pride for the hobos is that they are migrant workers. They travel and work for a living. But as the job market has changed, so have they. They've had to evolve a lot over the years to survive, apparently. They lost a big source of their supplemental nutrition and almost died out when people quit leaving pies on the windowsills to cool off sometime in the 1950s. All the hobos I've met are very into technology. And by technology, I mean technology from the 80s and 90s. I've seen more than a few original Nintendo Game Boys being passed around to kill the time. Seems that the number one job available to the traveling hobo these days is computer repair. Rollaway Jim tells me that over 75% of our nation's ID departments are staffed by temp agencies who are actually hobo placement services in disguise. Entry number four. Today I was shown some hobo sign by One-Legged Larry. Hobo sign is a written code that's drawn on the sides of the buildings, train cars, or written on pavement that was invented by them in order to communicate important info about the area to other hobos. Some examples included No antivirus Grandparents with CPU Fast dial up here Dogs Geek squad territory Hermit in the area 
Entry number five. Two nights ago, we got off the train at around 3 a.m. somewhere in Illinois. We met four more hobos on the edge of town. These hobos, after spending some time with me, decided my road name would be Cronkite Jim, since Curious Jim apparently didn't cover enough of the journalistic angle. I was to learn that they were about to go on a raid, as they called it, and they wanted me to come along. Normally, I'd assume they were talking about something illegal, given that it was three in the morning and there was a lot of veiled references and excited, nervous energy in the group. But by now, I'd start to suspect that just like the hermits, this would turn out to be something less illegal and more flat-out stupid. Ah. Turns out all they were doing was dumpster diving behind a Best Buy for Geek Squad cast-offs. You'd have thought we were breaking into Fort Knox based on how much drama and subterfuge that they were playing up. And afterwards, there is also a ridiculous amount of celebrating and hijinks into the wee morning hours until the sun came up. However, Adam, there is something that's actually troubling me. As harmless as goofy as the hobos seem to be, I woke up last night as the train was crossing a pitch-black landscape somewhere, and I saw the hobos' silhouettes all handing large bags of something to each other, and then the last hobo by the door of the train car was throwing them off into the darkness. They were working in absolute silence, and after four weeks of traveling and living with them, that in itself was jarring. I'm not sure how much longer I'll travel with them, but I do want to get to the bottom of this whole hermit-hobo feud. They tell me that they're taking me to visit Professor Jim, who can tell me much more about what I want to know. So I guess I'll stick it out a little bit longer. I'll be in touch when I can. And now we're going to hear again from the saint who has uh, sent in three brand new beasts that he says he observed in the wild. Again, he's sent in his drawings and his recordings of his field notes about them. But instead of describing the drawings this time, I'm just going to uh, post the, the actual sketches of the beasts done by the saint himself to my Twitter account. So you can go there. It's at Huge Pop. And you can see the drawings that the saint made himself and look at them as you listen along to his descriptions. And then after the three beasts, he also sent along a bonus poem. So here is the saint now. Fanger. The fanger has a blue, bluish black coat of just longer than slick fur, and he walks with a low gait as if on the prow. His head is a white head with normal eyes and canine ears. He is most known, as I could tell in my memories, from what he sees on the middle of his face, most gruesome and gangly fangs you've ever seen with your eyes. They are open and aimed straight towards you when he's looking at you. But look a little closer. What are those two holes in between those vicious, vicious jaws? <laughs> they wiggle. They, they, they seem to convulse with every breath. What is that strange thing protruding from his chin? It goes down and it divides in two towards the bottom. 
Oh, that carrion laying on the ground has been there so long it gets decays into just a gelatinous blob. He is sticking that protruding beard thing towards it and eating through that thing in his chin. Why, those fangs are surrounding his nose. They can't even bite in the first place. They're only to do that term that makes a harmless beast look like a dangerous one to protect him from outsiders. Oh, look there, that spinach has gotten too old. It's two days old, so it's coated in slime and inedible to the rest of the kingdom. There, with his tender, tender, innocent little thing, toothless gums that protrude down from his chin, he's just going ahead and slurping it right up. Chain Nipper Chain Nipper has a most curious hunting pattern. It is a predator seeking the biggest, biggest beast it can find his mouth on. But rather than biting it, you see the chain nipper is a very, very feeble predator. Very thin, almost like you can break it in half if you only drop it in the wrong ways. Well, the thing that it does to bring down its prey is the very long term. It's got a challenge because the first chain nipper will nip the beast that it wants to eat. And the second chain nipper will nip the first chain nipper. The third name chain nipper will nip the fourth chain nipper. By the time you get about 30 chain nippers down the line, there's a good chance that you don't even know if what beast is at the front that they want to eat. But if he wants a treat, he better nip the chain nipper he finds. <laughs> Many times, in fact, the original beast will get away and they don't even know that they can get on with their lives because they're busy nipping the previous chain nipper. And so that can create a major hassle for them. The second major hassle is when they get the, the chain nipper, well, keep a beast on the hook. He will keep nipping and then that beast has to drag and drag and drag and drag and drag a massive, long, long, long line of dozens and dozens of chain nippers. To the point of exhaustion, he will fall asleep. Now the chain nippers can keep their bite when they fall asleep, but it weakens so. So they must waken very quickly and re-clench their bite, lest the chain nipper, or excuse me, unless the prey gets a chance to bolt, or unless they, they lose in the link with the previous chain nipper and the chain can break in the chain nipper that we're dragging like an anchor, a long, long, long anchor becomes lighter and easy for the prey to get running again. They must do this for many, many days and it can be quite a game of wake up and run or else you might get eaten by the chain nippers. Tree ankles. When I came to the edge of a forest, I saw a strange, one of the strangest things I've ever seen. I saw a four-legged animal. It had foot hoofs on the end of four long, slender legs. The animal was on its back, 
with its face pointed skyward. The animal had many, many pounds of fat stuck around a waistline as if he had eaten a big ball of something. But what was most striking about this animal was the beast's very ankles were inside of a tree. And I don't mean in the hole, I don't mean in a nook. I mean the tree rose from the earth and then a few feet up were these ankles and then the rest of the tree continued on as if there were no beasts trapped near the bottom of the tree. I can only imagine that something happened to make this animal stay put while the tree grew from a sapling up above and it was there for so many years the tree grew around his ankles holding him still there so he can't exercise. Now then there was one other piece that was quite unique about this beast. What I saw was in addition to not just him exercising but also other beasts came through the forest and all bring him all the fruits, grapes, seeds, everything to his desire as if he was the religion of the other beasts. They liked him. Perhaps he was in prison and they had a debt to the prison system to feed those who were wrong for an entire life, confusing the burden that the criminal commits on the freed, freed beasts. Even perhaps he was a deity where they worship him and bring him a lifetime of offerings and supplication for his immobility. Forced to come up with more explanations, I debate whether perhaps the other beasts dare him to keep his ankles put on the sapling and then when they grew immobile, the other beasts of the forest grew and shouted and grilled and needed to bring him things just because of their own guilty and they knew what they had done. A final idea would be perhaps they find his um, stunt entertaining means of entertainment and perhaps he as an entertainment icon among the beasts bring him things that they would think he would like while he is doing something so strange that they can't believe what they're seeing with their eyes. A rare token of entertainment in the beast world to the beast's eyes, who can know who is the criminal, who is the entertainer, even who is the deity, or even who is the wronged one. Upon reflecting on the tree ankles, I couldn't stop thinking about trying to figure out how he got that way. How did that beast get his ankles stuck in that tree? And also, why are the other beasts burdened with keeping him alive and feeding him. In a dark, dark journey, I wondered if perhaps they trapped him and held him in place until the point where the tree would grow around his ankles and keeping him in prison, and they want him to be tender meat for them to eat someday, and they're plumping him up into a delicacy by feeding him all the treats that his heart desires. However, this violates one of my um, life's understandings at least on a forward-looking basis, 100% of the time you can be 100% certain that anything good that possibly can happen will definitely happen. And while this is 
hypothesizing about the past and present, I view that applying the life's credo of the future to the past and present can be a reliable way to understand what you're seeing in the day-to-day -day life. And that's when I turn to another hypothesis that perhaps um, the beast was born with a disability and a confusion. This confusion led the beast just to walk straight from the womb to the tree, and kick up his ankles, and wait for it to grow. In a duty to the lesser abled beast, many of the other beasts might show their compassion, and not because they're getting anything back for it, but because it's the right thing to do, they feed the beast that is less able to take care of itself. I'm the saint, and I wrote you a poem about floating. Is floating simply sinking to the bottom of a pond? Perhaps it has something to do with your weight, where the world is less heavy than you, and therefore you hold still while everything else passes you by in a race to the heavens. For that matter, perhaps you're moving right along, but everything else is just going up faster? Do you have first-hand experience lying beneath a tree, on your back facing up to that ceiling of leaves, and stop to wonder if it's actually a floor of leaves? And then you fall and crash up into it? Maybe floating isn't so complex. Perhaps it is simply when you open your eyelids too wide and your eyes float out and pull your brains out behind. It seems impossible until your eyes turn around and see your brains for the first time. You have too, and it surprises me too. Here at Out of All Doors, one of the questions I get the most often is, what is Gentleman's Mills co-founder The Hat like? Well, to be honest, I've never met him and know next to nothing about him. But one thing I do know is that this month, Gentleman's Mills is offering up a special selection of hats from The Hat Collection. Hats that have received The Hat's personal stamp of approval. Would he personally wear all or even some of these hats? Perhaps not, but by golly, he'll design and sell them. So now, here are just some of the hats from Gentleman's Mills Hats, The Hat Collection. Number one, basketball sombrero. Pair with ultra-high-waisted shorts pulled up to just below where your pectoral muscles should be to effectively disrupt any pickup basketball game. Number two, suspender hat. Mount the mannequin's legs on your shoulders before connecting the mannequin's suspenders to your hat, which hangs just below his crotch and just above your scalp, meaning you get all of the benefits of a hat with none of the head discomfort, although shoulder discomfort will be unavoidable. Number three, halfway hat. This hat may only be worn under the direct supervision of your parole officer. Number four, chat. This is one of the only talking hats in existence. It says two words, hat and chat. Wonderful for parties and solitary recreation alike. Number five, Mama Mantis's chocolate hat. This romantic hat can be eaten off of your partner's head on Valentine's Day. Number six, torso hat. 
This hat has holes for your arms and head and fully conceals your chest, stomach, and back. You can even tuck it into your pants or Gentleman's Mills Legs hat for a more formal look. Hat Hut. This hut-shaped hat can be worn for sport or, more recommendedly, used to house a family of very tiny hats. Number 8. The W Hat. Tired of asking friends to repeat themselves only to accidentally talk over their preemptive repeat, thus forcing you to face the embarrassment of asking them to say it a third time? With the W hat, you can simply point at your head and keep the airwaves clear for your listening and respectful wide-eyed attention. Your conversation partner will be blown away by how much you value their words when they realize that the W hat stands for what? Number 9, the 11-gallon hat. This hat is no mere namesake or western curio. It has been manufacturer approved to be true to capacity and holding up to 11 gallons of the finest liquids known to gentlemen. The hat is specially lined with a steel trough that keeps the liquids from destroying the hat's fine wool-blended canvas suede material. Though wearing the hat has been deemed disastrous by the International Association of Chiropractors, we feel the hat's function more than justifies its potential damages. Chattel Chattel this hat, engraved with personalized images of the wearer's non-real estate holdings such as livestock, cars, and other sundries, is sure to start a conversation, or as we like to call it at Gentleman's Mills for the express purposes of this product, chattel. Number 11, Total Recall Hat Edition. This little hat fits on any Total Recall DVD case to give it a special jaunty, hatty look. Number 12, The All Bill. Not but a thin strap of rubbered band holds this extra-long hat bill to your head. Fools will gape and wonder at the bill and wonder indeed how it stays aloft with nary a hat nor strap supporting it. Number 13, Clean Cap Extra. This repurposed beer hat holds detergent, fabric softener, and bleach, which can all be dispensed with a series of expertly directed nods. For laundry use only, canisters are only refillable and not replaceable. Number 14, Tug the Hat. While we can't tell you what happens when you tug the hat, we can say that tugging the hat legally waives your right to personal safety for what happens next. Number 15, the dub hat. When this state-of-the-art hat detects any hint of your mouth moving, it blares your potential words into a dubbed rare language from New Guinea. Number 16, unblissable, the sour beanie. Load up your D-cells and start choking down your meatloaf as unblissable keeps you warm and takes care of your complaining at the dinner table. Premium model includes a three-way switch to select the voice of the dandy, the hat, or an alternating tag team union of the two, building off of each other's sour, sour complaints. It's like the gentlemen are right there beside you, allies you can trust to not like your food either, right when you need it most. Number 17, where do I begin? Wear this extra-large graduation cap to the beach when you're ready for swarms of sexy people to give you all the attention. The hat square, flat board top isn't used for tossing, but rather contains an elaborate line maze that all the hotties are just dying to solve. Just between you and the gentleman, there's no entrance. There'll be a shark feeding frenzy around you like you're the hottest whale on the beach, everyone wanting to solve your hat. Where do I begin? Number 18, filthy hat. If you drop this hat in the swamp, it'll be gross. Number 19, hat with small door. This hat has a small door in the top so that mosquitoes can have access to your scalp without banding together to either remove your hat or even worse, destroy it. Number 20, hat men toe. Half hat, half spatula. This hat is a serviceable portmanteau first and a purchasable product second. And number 21, hat trick. 
This seemingly ordinary hat comes with a special trick. Just when you think you've bought the hat outright, do you realize that you've made the first of an indefinite number of bi-weekly payments? Listen, this is uh, this is Ben, cousin Ben, and real quick before Dwayne gets in here, uh, I should let you know he's a little off this month. You need to cut him some slack. I couldn't get him to sit out on this one. He insists on going ahead with the show and being useful, but you should know it might be a bit confusing. He's not making much sense lately. When he fell out of his chair last month after his fit. He hit his head on my radiator and got a mild, or not so mild, concussion. So the doctor says his weird speech patterns should go back to normal if he takes it easy, so please bear with us, huh? Thanks. Hey everyone, this is Cousin Ben. And I am, as always, Dwayne Leesman. And as you may or may not have suspected, this is Regarding the Dawn. Dwayne and I are here once again to help you all become better nature photographers. And human beings. Uh, well, okay, sure, sure. I just fail to see the value of endeavoring to only improve one's artistic self. This month we might take it down a teeny bit because Dwayne here is still slightly concussed. Now, Ben, I told you. Now, just as always, I am fully capable of apprehending whatever concepts that you might wish to expound upon at length, and more than willing to... Easy there, big shooter. We don't need you straining the brain any more than the edge of the radiator already has. Let's just take some baby steps this month, shall we? As you wish. All right, listeners. So let's get things going this month with a question. Have you ever heard the term street photography? I'm sure you have. It's all the rage right now. It's a very recent photography movement which has every numbskull with a camera and a couple blocks of concrete thinking that they're a regular Andy Warhol running around and snapping pictures of the human condition or life on the street or some equally obnoxious general concept that makes for very boring photography with lots of overweight people in tube tops, melty ice cream cones, and confused looking pedestrians trying to step over some goofball laying in the middle of a crosswalk trying to get a new angle on the hectic speed of modern life. Well, it it sounds dreadful. You are absolutely right there, my friend. But let me ask you a second question. Have you ever heard of stream photography? Well, I... I can't say that ring... Sorry. Well, I can't say that that name rings a bell. Of course it doesn't, because I just coined the term. Oh, I see. The way I perceive a street is something like a stream of liquid life force. Thousands of people spilling over each other, smashing into things and eroding away everything in its path, carrying trash and fish and parking tickets with it, log jams and beaver dams of emotions piling up and blocking the flow of everything, and it's, it's just always unsafe for small children to cross. Hmm, and, I, and, I'm not sure that So I what I've done fall. here is to merge the two concepts of street photography and nature photography together and come up with a style and technique that I am calling stream photography 
for photographing nature that will allow you to capture nature in all its natural, hectic pace without all the gross, stupid human element getting in the way. Oh, splendid! That really is delightful. Surely you realize the potential for analogous referentiality between such highly disparate subjects. What a remarkable conceptual leap you have arrived upon. <laughs> Simply marvelous. Stream photography. Oh, I'm going to enjoy thinking about that one for quite some time. And without the sapient component, it could really be something quite novel. Naturally. Would you expect any less? Well, to be honest, Honesty I... is exactly what we're after here, my brain-damaged friend. Honesty of nature and the way of life in the wild. No posturing, no fake people or facades. Real, raw, unfiltered stream photography. Nature as it happens. Captured by immersing yourself into the stream of the outdoors existence. Getting up into nature's business and shoving that wide-angle lens right in its face and firing away. Taking no prisoners and not sitting around with your tripod all set up still and taking 10-minute exposures of gently swaying, weeping willow trees. I must submit that it all sounds like it would rather contravene oneself to the serene flow of nature and slipping through the natural realm as a conscientious observer, as I am confident many of our listeners out there in the ether actually do classify themselves as. Therefore, I do imagine it will be quite the uphill slog to vend your philosophy to... Dwayne, it's going to be okay, man. Just don't panic. Just don't panic. What? A panic? Why? Do, don't, don't worry that your words are all nonsense and gibberish, okay? Just remember what the doctor said, right? This is exactly why I wanted you to take a break from the show this month, and it's probably gonna be a little scary that you can't communicate, but it's all gonna go back to normal if you just take it slow. I'm sure I have no idea what you are talking about. Yes, exactly, that's exactly what I'm saying. What? No, that's not what I- Just take it easy. This is preposterous. To call into question my, there, there is nothing wrong with the way that I am speaking. Oh, good boy, Dwayne. I'm so proud of you. Aren't we? We aren't we so proud of you, listeners? We all are. That that must have been very hard to get those words out. I will not tolerate you lobbying your puerile drivel at me in feeble attempts to patronize me uh, into. Ah, uh, 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 Dwayne. What did the doctor say about staying calm? He, he, he said that I. That there was a remote possibility that I could go into a coma if I, if I don't stay calm. That's right. And to take long, slow walks to calm down and to not talk to very many people with your concussion talk, right? Well, I failed to see how my ambulations would be inhibited in the slightest by my articulations. Poetry and- again, Dwayne? Isn't, isn't that how we got into this mess in the first place? Really? Why don't you just leave it to the pros? Really? Now, I, I just... I, I really and this didn't... is just why that barista called the cops on us yesterday. Well, that was merely a misunderstanding. Oh, I think that miss was understanding exactly what you were saying. Are, are you implying that I was behaving untowards? I think it was your towards that she was taking offense to. Yes. I... Wait, wait. Just, just relax. And don't... Try to talk, okay? There is there's just no way you are going to get your mixed up brain bonk talk to make sense to our listeners, so you should just Despite just... your adroitness in most artistic endeavors, I must say that I cannot agree with you there. While I do agree that 
absolute, pure, accurate communication can never be truly possible in an academic sense, I do believe it is fair to postulate that communication can successfully exist asymptotically between two parties. It's okay, buddy. I know you believe you're making sense, but that big bar on your noggin... It's it's just making a mess. I must insist that you keep your prodding, bony protuberances out of my head wound, you great... Baboon? Baboon? Oh, big words from a man who is living in his sister's basement and pretending to be a failed folk singer. I wasn't pretending. Oh, yeah? Were you also not pretending to fall out of your chair and smack your head, too? Because I could help you not fake it this time if you... Really? You and what militia? This one right here. Hey, stop. Get off. Get off my leg. What are you doing? Stop biting me. Hey, hey. This Well, isn't this a surprise, Grang? I thought we weren't going to be uh, hearing from you until your friend Adam got elected to the school board next April. Are we recording? Yes, and all your fans at home, if you had any, which you don't, would be cheering right now if they existed. Cheering at your terrible catchphrase, but... Why are you calling in, Greg? Has it been ten months already? Uh, no, Drent, not even close. It's actually only been one month since we last spoke. But I was just calling in because I figured the listeners would want assurance that we're still right on track to get that login information for the old Out of All Doors blog. All right, well, you've, uh, you've probably figured wrong, but as long as we've got you here, are you still on track? Yes, definitely. All right. Well, uh, thanks for calling in, Greg. It's good to know that you're capable of going a whole month without actually distancing yourself from that password. But really, you don't need to check in every month. We can just wait until you've actually uh, until you've got something new to report. So, uh, anyway, bye. Wait, wait, Drent. Hold on, hold on. As long as I've got you here, I wanted to quickly tell you about my new segment idea for when I get the login information and I get my own segment on Out of All Doors. People are really going to love this one. Now, Drent, listen. Have you noticed how we don't have a single segment about falconry on Out of All Doors? How is that even possible? An outdoors podcast with no falconry coverage at all? Well, that's where I step in. The show's called The Glove and Talon, and it's all about tips for training your bird. You know nothing about this subject, Grang. You don't even have a bird. Aha, Drent. That's where you're wrong. I do have a bird of my own now. What? Why? Well, I had to purchase one. It's kind of a complicated story. You bought a bird? What are you talking about? I thought you didn't have any money. In fact, haven't you basically been sinking yourself further in debt since this thing began? I didn't use my own money, Drent. As you said, I don't have any. Well, I can already picture uh, this spiraling out of control, but... Why did you buy a bird using someone else's money, Grang? And whose money was it? All right. Well, if you really want to know, Drent, then I'm going to have to back up to the night of Adam's big speech. All right. And to the listeners, the Adam Grang is talking about isn't me. This is the guy who's running for school board on a campaign to bring back a live crow in a headdress as the uh, the school mascot. Yeah, he's trying to read. Please, please don't. The- please, please don't say that again. 
All right. Well, anyway, if you'll recall, Adam, as a sign of his great trust in me, had given me a full 30 seconds before his speech to introduce him, and I was to have complete creative control over that 30 seconds. So my plan was to modify my man versus wild versus child idea into more of a man versus introduction versus child, where I would call a child out of the audience to come up on stage with me to help me with the introduction. Well, as luck would have it, there was a child in the audience that night. Wait, wait, so, as, as luck would have it, that doesn't seem that unlikely, Greg. I mean, was this speech at, at midnight in a, in a strip club or something? No, no, it was a very family-friendly event. It's just that there weren't very many people there. So the odds that one of them would bring a child were not that high. But, as I said, fate smiled upon our campaign once again, and there was a child in the audience. Except it turned out that fate was actually frowning on our campaign because as soon as the child arrived on stage, he knocked over Sammy's cage, broke it open, and Sammy panicked and began flapping around the room, crashing into people and gouging them with his beak and, yes, with his tomahawk. In fact, no one really escaped unscathed. Wait, wait, were, were people panicking? How, how many people were injured? <laughs> yeah, it was a complete panic. All five people in attendance were injured. And not only that, but one of the injured men in a panic stumbled out the door and Sammy flew out before the door closed and he escaped and, well, we lost him. So your stupid man versus introduction versus child routine ruined everything. Are you ready to admit that man versus wild versus child is a bad idea yet? No, not at all. In the first place, children don't know anything about introductions. And in the second place, the child I chose out of the crowd was terrible, obviously. But my options were very limited. On man versus wild versus child, on the other hand, my options will be limitless. Yeah, only a, a truly overbearing helicopter parent wouldn't want their child alone in the wild with you fighting for survival. You're comparing apples and oranges, Trent. Introductions are nothing like the wild. Well... On that, we agree. But, but Greg, I mean, you just told me a few minutes ago that everything is still right on track for you to retrieve the password. But it doesn't sound to me like Adam is going to be very happy to grant you the one boon you're assuming you'll get. I mean, isn't his campaign pretty much over without Sammy? He must really hate you right now. Well, yes, he was upset. Despondent, actually. Inconsolable. He was saying stuff about how he had assumed that fate had brought me to him to show that everything was going to be fine and that he should continue with his campaign. But then he was saying stuff about how actually it seemed like fate had brought me to him in order to drive Sammy away and end his campaign once and for all. That was the only message he could take from what had happened. But then I pointed out that I was a detective, and who better to track down an escaped crow than a detective? Perhaps Fade had brought me to Adam so that I could use my detective abilities to track down Sammy. But you're the one who lost Sammy. It seems like Fate could have just skipped a step and left you out of it entirely. Then no one would need to find Sammy. Ah, but someone did need to find Sammy, and Fate had decreed that that someone would be me. And Adam agreed. I could see that what I'd said to him had heartened him, and so off I went to find Sammy the Crow and bring him back to Adam and eventually to all the people of Croton. I wonder if this search went better than the, uh, than the search for the password and the, uh, the search for form 0906 whatever. 
Form 09065538. Is that the form you're talking about? Yeah, I guess so. The one Adam had you searching for so he could uh, officially be considered as a school board candidate or, or whatever. Oh, Trent, no. You're talking about Form 90006823. Don't be embarrassed. Lots of people get those two forms mixed up. Well, I'm, I'm not embarrassed. Well, good. Anyway, so the first step was to try to find Sammy. Well, I couldn't do that, but then I thought, don't all crows look the same? What if I just go catch a wild crow and put him in a similar costume? Adam will be none the wiser. What, you gave up on finding the real Sammy right away? Dred, come on. I'm a detective, not an animal control agent. Sammy flies. How was I going to be able to follow his footprints to his hiding place if he didn't walk there? Does everything you know about detectives come from, uh, from cartoons? No, of course not. It mostly comes from personal experience of having detective stuff and therefore being a detective. But anyway, having no leads on Sammy, I went out into the woods to try to catch a wild crow. Okay, and? And not only did I not die, I didn't even break any bones. Wow, an unqualified success, except for the fact that I'm assuming you caught zero crows. But I had a backup plan. I always have a backup plan. I guess that's wise, considering the quality of your primary plans. Think about it, Drent. What's one of the things that Croton is most famous for? The fact that several of its most prominent citizens are breeders of fine crows. All I needed to do was buy a crow from one of these local breeders, dress it up in a headdress and tomahawk, and voila, instant Sammy. Unfortunately, though, these locally bred crows are very expensive, and I don't actually have access to any money. But fortunately, Adam did have around $1,000 saved up for his campaign, which I gather was mostly his money. It seems that while Adam was certain that he had a lot of popular support in town, he told me that the people don't actually donate any money to his campaign. Instead, they just anonymously donate toys for Sammy. Sammy has a whole room full of toys, in fact. But anyway, so I knew Adam had this money on hand for the campaign, so I went to him and told him that I needed the money for stuff like crow bait and nets and to pay informants. Adam knows that all good detectiving takes hard work, but he was a little hesitant to give me all the money he had. But then I pointed out to him that without Sammy, the entire campaign was dead in the water anyway. So he agreed to give me the money, he gave me the money, and then I went straight to the nearest crow breeder, who turned out to be an old man named Hack Cecily. And it turned out it was a good thing that I got all $1,065.43 from Adam because, as luck would have it, or as fate would have it, that's exactly what the crow Mr. Cecily sold to me cost, down to the penny. Can you believe that? Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's almost enough to make me wonder if this Mr. Cecily character knew, uh, knew how much you had on hand before he quoted you the price. Well, I told him how much I had on me and asked if that would be enough. And it turned out that it was enough, but just barely. $1,065.43 was the exact price of Mr. Cecily's cheapest crow. His worst crow. Well, all crows look the same. But it actually turned out that even Mr. Cecily's cheapest crow was too good. Because when I got Theodore home... Wait, wait, wait. I, what? Who's Theodore? The crow's name is Theodore? Yes, it's Theodore Crozevelt. I didn't name him that, but it does suit him. Anyway, I got him home and smuggled him into my room at Adam's house because I wasn't ready to present Theodore as Sammy yet. 
Then when Adam left the house, I dressed Theodore up in one of Sammy's backup headdresses and affixed one of Sammy's backup tomahawks to Theodore's wing and let him loose in the garage to see how he looked. Well, I have to admit, that was a total disaster. He flew around the garage perfectly, with grace and poise. He didn't crash into anything. He would never be believable as Sammy. He was far too refined. His good breeding had worked too well. He had none of Sammy's recklessness, none of Sammy's air of panic and desperation, none of Sammy's clumsiness. He flew with purposeful ease, Drent, and no way could you have rightly described Theodore's flight as careening. It was obviously a different bird. If I wanted to pass him off as Sammy, I was going to have to unrefine him. Whew, uh, this can't bode well for Theodore. Oh no, Theodore loved it, actually. He'd led such a strict, rigid, disciplined life until I bought him. My unrefinement program allowed him to finally indulge himself for the first time in his life. He embraced it. I set up a little perch for him in front of a TV in my room, and he spent all day watching talk shows and awful sitcoms, and I fed him nothing but Cheetos for every meal and every snack. Well, he really never stopped eating Cheetos, in fact. Turns out he loves Cheetos. And he didn't even know until I introduced them to him. Well, that's something to be proud of. I'm sure you'll be telling your grandchildren about the time you facilitated an expensive crow's discovery of Cheetos. Well, but now I had a new problem. Because Theodore took to the unrefinement program a little too well. And after just a couple of weeks, when I took him back to the garage and put the headdress and tomahawk on him, he didn't fly gracefully. So that was good. But he also didn't fly at all, so that was bad, because Sammy definitely flies. So, wait, Theodore didn't fly? Why not? He just refused? Hmm. Well, I think he may have wanted to fly, but really he just wasn't capable of getting that bulk off the ground, even without the costume. I'd been a little too successful in unrefining him, I guess. Now he was even less like Sammy than before, and I had no money to get another crow. So all you'd succeeded at doing at this point was bankrupting Adam's campaign and, and ruining a crow. No, no, Theodore wasn't ruined. He was still a great crow in many ways. He was just far too fat and unwell to make a passable Sammy. I tried my best to train him back up, but I wasn't really sure where to start. And whenever I tried to turn the TV off or feed him something other than Cheetos, Theodore would just start squawking horribly. And I couldn't have Adam finding him before he was ready to be Sammy. So I decided I needed a trainer to help re-refine Theodore a little bit. Not as refined as he was when I got him, just a little more refined than he was now. So I went back to Mr. Cecily, the breeder, and asked him to recommend a trainer. And man, he took one look at Theodore and cried out in horror, and then he broke down in tears, and then he told me that although he personally would probably euthanize Theodore for his own good, that if there was any hope for Theodore, the only person who could possibly salvage him was a mysterious man known to most people in town as the Crow Chief. Wait, I thought you said there weren't actually any members of the Crow tribe in Croton. There aren't. This man isn't even remotely Native American. The Crow Chief is just an honorary title of respect because he comes from a long line of legendary crow breeders, and his crows are widely regarded as the best in Croton. In fact, he's won first prize at the Croton Crow Show for years and years in a row. You know, Greg, I pray to God I never find myself in Croton. 
So I took Theodore to the Crow Chief's house. I figured that if there was any chance of transforming Theodore into a passable Sammy, the Crow Chief was it. His house was huge, but the front gate was open, so I walked up to the front door with Theodore riding on my shoulder, and I rang the doorbell. I stood there for a few minutes, and my shoulder was getting pretty tired and very sore, and just when I was about to turn around and leave, the door opened, and there he was, the Crow Chief. I greeted him, but he didn't say anything. He couldn't take his eyes off Theodore. He just stood there, shaking his head, looking more and more sad. Appalled, I guess, would be the word. I could tell he agreed with me that Theodore had become a little too unrefined. So I told him that I had heard that he was an excellent crow trainer, and that my crow Theodore had become a bit too unrefined, and that he needed to be slightly re-refined for a specific reason that I wasn't at liberty to divulge. And I also told him that I wouldn't be able to pay for this re-refinement with money, but perhaps I could offer him my services as a detective as payment. But the crow chief just shook his head and said that Theodore was way too far gone, even for his advanced crow training skill to rectify. When he asked me how Theodore had gotten into this state, I told him all about the unrefinement regimen I'd had Theodore on. And just as the crow chief had raised his hand to strike me, from behind him, from inside the house, I heard a crashing, a cawing, and who but Sammy flew into view knocking over a coat rack and taking a chunk out of the stairs railing with his tomahawk. He was even still in costume. Well, when I cried out, Sammy, the crow chief stayed his hand and nervously said, Sammy, who's that? What are you talking about? But eventually he just sighed and said, who am I trying to kid? There's no way I'm going to keep it hidden from a detective. Yes, that's Sammy. Wait, did he really say that? Well, something to that effect. So then I told him that I worked for Adam's school board campaign and that we were working together to try to reinstate the Jim Crow, but that Sammy had escaped and that the campaign was in dire trouble without him, and that, in fact, the whole reason I was even there at his house was to try to save the campaign. And that's when the Crow chief invited me in and told me everything. Told you everything? Like like what? Well, he told me about how he'd come from a long line of the most respected crow breeders in Croton, how he'd been raised to value certain refined traits in crows, how he'd been raised to look down on crows without those traits. But he also told me how something inside of him had rebelled at that notion, and how even though he had taken up the family tradition of crow breeding and had in fact exceeded all of the accomplishments of his forefathers in the field of crow breeding, he had always nurtured a private admiration for a different kind of crow, a more boisterous, bold, brash, crowy kind of crow, a less refined crow. And then one morning, the crow chief found a wild crow injured on his property, the exact kind of crow he had been raised to disdain. But rather than turn his back on this crow, he nursed it back to health and gave it a home, and in time, this crow had become his personal favorite. Not just a crow to be raised according to specific guidelines and shown for glory, but a pet, a companion. And you'll never guess who this crow was. I'm going to guess it was Sammy. It was Sammy! A crow devoid of charm or elegance, and that's what the crow chief loved about him. So when Croton High School voted to adopt the crows as their new mascot, and they put out a call for a real crow to serve as the mascot at sporting events... All the crow breeders in town considered such a position far beneath their crows. 
but the crow chief knew that Sammy would be just perfect for the job. So, with both sadness and pride, the crow chief anonymously donated Sammy to the school. He loved the idea that Sammy, a true crow, would represent the town instead of one of the stuffy, snobby crows. But he still had to donate Sammy anonymously because if anyone had known that Sammy came from him, his reputation in the crow breeding community would have been destroyed. And as little as he respected the rest of the crow breeding community, he was still afraid to alienate them, afraid to turn his back on decades of family tradition, afraid to face life apart from the only vocation he'd ever known, the only vocation his father had ever considered worthwhile. He was a little worried about his decision when he heard that Sammy would be wearing a headdress and a tomahawk. But the first time he went to a basketball game and saw Sammy turn loose in the gym, saw him careening around and crashing into people, squawking and cawing and making a big mess, the crow chief knew that this was exactly what Sammy wanted, that this was the perfect situation for Sammy, that only while careening around and hurting people and making a big mess could Sammy ever be truly happy. And he attended every home basketball game, his heart swelling with pride and joy whenever Sammy was let loose to wreak his havoc. Wait, so this supposed crow expert misinterpreted Sammy's fear and panic, his obvious fear and panic, as joy and celebration. Who are we to judge, Drent? He's the expert. But, but anyway, of course he was crushed when word came down that Sammy had been removed from his position as the mascot because the costume was racist. But the crow chief couldn't come forward to claim Sammy because then he would reveal to the world that he'd been the source of Sammy, which would have been especially toxic for him considering the fact that Sammy was now associated with racism. He was relieved when Adam stepped forward and offered to take care of Sammy, but still he couldn't just drop out of Sammy's life. So a few times a week, he would leave little toys for Sammy on Adam's porch. So the toys that Adam thought were expressions of support for his campaign from a silent majority in the community were actually the gifts of one sad old man who couldn't get over his crow? That's correct. But this story has a happy ending. Because when Sammy escaped after that dreadful child knocked over his cage, Sammy flew straight to the crow chief's house, the place he still considers his home, apparently. Well, when I heard all this, I knew all my problems were solved. All I had to do was bring Adam and the Crow Chief together. So that's what I did. And when the Crow Chief heard Adam explain his passion for getting elected to the school board so that he could make Sammy the mascot again instead of that awful pair of dancing French doors they have now, well, the Crow Chief realized that it was time for him to come out of the shadows, to stop hiding his love for Sammy, and to declare to the world that he too wants to reinstate the Jim Crow. And not only that, but he wants to tell the world the story of his love for Sammy and how the two of them came together. And so that's how things stand now. Adam and the Crow Chief are united, and the Crow Chief is fully funding Adam's campaign. And that's why fate brought me to Croton, Drent, to bring these two people who need each other together. All right, well, what about that form you were supposed to be finding? You mean form 9000068323? I don't know, yes. The only form I would ask about. Oh, yes. Well, when the Crow Chief heard that I was trying to find the last copy of it, he just logged on to the government website and printed off a copy. He's a very important person in the community, so he is really well connected. So you couldn't have printed off the form weeks ago? No, of course not. I didn't know it was there. 
So, so what's going on with the login information then? The upshot of all of this is that you still have to wait for Adam to win the election so that you can ask him to grant you a boon? Yeah, exactly. Right on track, as I said. Wait, oh, and, and hold on. What, what happened to Theodore? Did he die? Die? No, he's alive and well. Well, not well, but he's alive. He's going to be on my segment with me. Wait, Theodore is the bird you were talking about? You want to give falconry tips based on your experience with ruining a fancy crow? Again, I didn't ruin him. I unrefined him. And even that's not a problem now because he doesn't need to pass a Sammy anymore. The real Sammy's back. So now Theodore can just focus on being himself. Fat, earthbound, and addicted to lowest common denominator television and Cheetos. I can't wait for you and the rest of the listeners to meet him on the glove and talon, Drent. Well, this uh, this has gone on so long, Greg, but I'm going to go ahead and give you a hard no on the glove and talon. Reserve judgment until you've met him, Drent. He'll change your mind, I'm sure. Bye, Greg. Bye. Close your eyes. Lie down. Relax. But don't relax so much that you can't concentrate. This one is going to require some concentration so you can follow it. Your relaxation and your concentration should be in a perfectly symbiotic relationship. Mutually beneficial like a fly who drinks a cow's milk straight from the cow's udder, but at night, when it goes home, it poisons all the other flies in its dormitory. Now, focus on this. You find yourself where I am. You see me. But as you're watching, you see me yawn, shiver, convulse, and then I split into two slightly, slightly smaller versions of myself. I'm usually 6'1", but now these two versions of me are 5'11 and 5'10". One of me, it doesn't matter which, tells the other me to close my eyes, lie down, and relax. And the other me complies immediately and without complaint, without even a moment of hesitation. You watch this exchange with interest, and you also feel a pang of guilt as you recall the times when you have balked at a simple demand for you to close your eyes, lie down, and relax. I tell me that I find myself in a desert. Rather than immediately questioning how a desert could be relaxing considering the probable heat and lack of water, I just visualize it how I tell myself to visualize it and trust that I will either address my objections or I will ignore them for good reason, or I will realize that maybe I didn't think of those objections and therefore I'm not failing to address them on purpose, but rather it just isn't occurring to me that there are any objections to address. But I know that my heart is in the right place, so I don't turn what's supposed to be a nice thing into a conflict by calling myself out over something that I might consider a mistake, although even that word seems inappropriately harsh. I tell myself that the desert around me is golden red and that I see massive buttes and cliffs streaked with orange-purple and my favorite color of all maroon. I instruct myself to visualize a lizard chasing another lizard toward a cactus, and on the cactus, I tell myself to visualize a butterfly using a small file to blunt the tips of the spines so that no one will get hurt if they try to affectionately pat the cactus because they think it's a puppy in need of patting. And as I instruct myself to visualize all of these things, I visualize all of these things exactly as instructed. And I find it so, so freeing to let someone else tell me what to visualize instead of having to visualize it myself. Even though it is me telling me to visualize it, and you, watching from across the room, 
See the contented smile spread across my lips, and you try to remember if you've ever let yourself smile that contentedly during a visualization exercise, and you realize that the answer must be no, because you've never really allowed yourself to commit to the visualization exercise to the extent that I'm committing to the visualization exercise from me right now in front of you. I've learned my lesson, you shout. Let me wholeheartedly participate in the visualization exercise now. I promise I'll do better. But the me's don't respond. We're too focused on our visualization exercise, and you realize that this is yet another opportunity for you to learn from this situation. Because how many times have you let an outside observer interfere with your visualizations, even if it's an outside observer within the visualization? With a heavy heart, you realize that the answer is dozens. Maybe even a gross, which is a dozen dozens, which is equal to the number 144, or maybe even a baker's gross, which is 13 dozens, or it might actually be 13 13s? I'm not sure on that one. Appropriately chastened, you sit back to continue watching me give me a visualization exercise, eager to learn more from this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to see a visualization exercise both delivered and received in perfect harmony, a truly magnificent thing to behold. You lean forward, ears perking up as I tell me to visualize a poisonous snake slithering through the sand. Will I react poorly like you usually do whenever something mildly threatening appears in the visualization exercise? Or will I react better than you? Something tells you that you already know the answer to this question. Sure enough, I react better than you ever have, just calmly visualizing what I'm told to visualize, without second-guessing or becoming less relaxed. And guess what? It pays off. I tell me to visualize the snake slithering right up to me and sinking its fangs directly into my exposed calf, and as I visualize this, I tell me that I feel toxins flowing out of my body, and I tell me that I realize that the snake is poisonous because it sucks anything even remotely poisonous out of its so-called victims, thereby taking the burden of their poison onto itself, which in turn makes it even more poisonous, if by poisonous you mean filled with poison, which I tell me to visualize that word as meaning that, which I happily do, because it's much more relaxing to just defer to the capable hands of me instead of resisting me every step of the way, or even any step of the way. You're inspired. You now see that there is a better way, that the visualization exercises can be relaxing on a deeper level than you've ever imagined. You pull out a pad and some paper and you start jotting down some notes. As you do, I tell me to visualize and visualize night falling over the desert, the shadows growing long, the night spiders clapping hands with the day spiders as they cross paths at the entrances to their burrows, the sun rotating around to expose its silvery cratered back, which is where we get the verb form of the word moon. You burst out laughing because you can't resist that kind of cheap joke. Then you notice that I'm not laughing, and you realize that your excessive reaction did irreparable violence to the joke, and that you basically ruined it for everyone forever, that it was the kind of joke you should have pretended to overlook so that it could live out its years in peace and quiet, leading a modest existence on the fringes of our notice. You know what? Maybe you should just leave. We can continue just fine without you. Open your eyes. You're back in the real world. But as you go this month... Take the peace of having the opportunity to learn a valuable lesson the hard way with you, even when you're inside of one or more doors.
Thank you for listening to the 22nd episode of Out of All Doors. I'm Adam Drent, and I would like to thank Matt Martin, Casey Bai, Greg Lynch, Chris Nichols, Andy Poppenfuss, Ben Bird, Cayman Bird, KT McVeigh, and Aaron Eikenberry for their contributions, written, audible, and technical. And thanks to Casey Bai, Chris Nichols, and J.J. Evans for making all of the music used in the show. And Casey wants me to tell you to look up the original version of Oh, What a Dream by Kevin Ayers. If you'd like to get in touch for any reason, you can send emails to the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com or me personally at adamdren at gmail.com. You can also call or text me at 574-518-1983. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm active on Twitter, too. I'm at HugePop. Here's another thing I'd love. If you went on iTunes and rated this podcast, maybe wrote a review, maybe even subscribed. And be sure to check out my website, HugePop.com, where you can find links to my other projects, including Bedtime Stories, One Man's World, and the music I make as the mispronouncer. Bedtime Stories and One Man's World are also on iTunes if you search for them under podcasts, and you could rate and review those too. And a Bedtime Stories app is also available for all smart-style phones. And also extra thanks to Chris Nichols for putting all the previous episodes of Outable Doors and One Man's World on YouTube. They're at the channel Huge Pop, written as one word, but be warned, if you just search that term without specifying that you're looking for a channel, then the first four results you get are zit and cyst popping videos. We'll be back in a month with episode 23 of Outable Doors.
battery. Bring your friends. They were in the battery till the end. There's a bat here. There's a bat over there. Oh no, there's a bat. There's bats everywhere. A bat, a bat, a bat. There's a bat, a bat, a bat, a bat. Bat. Oh my god, oh my god, there's a bat, there's a bat, yeah, yeah, there's a bat, there's a bat, there's a bat! <laughs>